Very excited about this final session at this venue. Dr. Jeremy Painter holds a PhD in New Testament theology from Radboud University, Netherlands, and a Doctor of Letters in English Literature from the University of Pretoria in South Africa. He is an assistant professor at, of English at Uni Regent University and the Writing Center director there as well. He has been an associate pastor. He currently lives in Virginia Beach. And he is here this morning to speak to us about early church history. He has been one of my favorite college professors, and I've enjoyed his classes. I'm sure we will enjoy this session this morning. Please help me welcome Dr. Jeremy Painter. It's a long time to be warming up in the bullpen. Good morning, good to be with you. Before visiting the sacred halls of early apostolic Christian history, let us first visit the tombs of the ancient philosophers. I hardly need to urge such a visit like a church encompassed by a graveyard full of leaning headstones, try as we might if we want to get inside. We can't avoid them. Any serious study of the second, third, and fourth centuries of the Christian church must account for them. It's evident that they haunted the thoughts of our theologians hovering over their texts and from their ancient resting place they called from, the be uh, from beyond the grave enlisting early Christians to fight their wars, wars they never succeeded in winning during their own lifetimes. Now, I'm going to warn you, um, from here, I'm very off script, so it won't do any good to read along more than likely. So um, I urge you, you might as well just close the book and use it for later. In what follows, I won't argue that philosophy and Hellenistic culture had a pernicious effect upon the faith. And that might strike some of you as odd, but hear me carefully. I myself have witnessed the havoc that such theories can wreak upon contemporary Christian faith. The well-meaning Christian hoping to purify his faith assumes sometimes a false dilemma. On the one side, all that is Greek is pagan and therefore idolatrous and wicked. On the other, all that is Jewish is truth and therefore holy. But history is so much messier than this theory would allow. For one thing, the New Testament wasn't written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek, as you know. The Apostle John didn't refer to that which was in the beginning with God as the Hebraic Devar. He spoke instead of the Logos, a Greek theological term, not an equivalent of Devar. Uh, the term had a prior history, um, a, a history so, uh, so far back that it, it had gone through several semantic revolutions by the time John used it at the end of the first century. And uh, if the Apostle Paul's Old Testament citations are any indication, he didn't use a Hebrew Old Testament. He may uh, well have had handy some kind of uh, Hebrew scroll, but uh, when he wrote his letters, it's very clear he relied upon the Septuagint, 
the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most tellingly, his description of proper ecclesial governance doesn't mirror the Jewish synagogue with which he was so familiar. Though Paul did speak of prophets and elders and pastors, terms close to Hebrew roots, he primarily borrowed terms derived from the Greek polis and the Roman cursus honorum. He called the faithful an ecclesia. Its leaders weren't rabbis, but diaconon, episkopoi, apostoloi, and evangeloi. Once we've decided that Greek equals bad and Jewish equals good, we find ourselves without a New Testament. We've cut off the very branch upon which we're sitting. I've seen the end of such admirably wrong-headed zeal firsthand. Followed to its logical conclusion, it almost always ends in a complete denial of Jesus Christ and his apostles. As one who believes in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, I cannot but see the election of God, divine providence in a Hebrew Testament and a Greek Testament. So allow me to affirm at the outset of this discussion, which will sometimes sound like a broadside against Greek philosophy, that our heritage includes both a Hebrew and a Greek element. And there is providence in this. The question is not whether or not the church should have incorporated Greco-Roman thought in its theology. By the end of the first century and into the early second century, as he feared, Paul's fellow countrymen rejected almost en masse Paul's view of Christ and embraced Ebionite or adoptionist views of Jesus. The Christian church, however, with its exalted view of Jesus, increasingly found a much more sympathetic audience among the Gentiles. Thus, the further it proceeded from the first century, the church could hardly help but think and speak in Greco-Roman terms. The real question is, given that there were in fact dozens of Gentile philosophical schools waiting for employment as the church moved into the future, why did the church choose the philosophical school that it did? Why did it embrace the speculative theology that it did? I'm going to argue that our historical problem is not one in which the church embraces Trinitarian theology simply because it rejects its Jewish roots and incorporated pagan theology. Instead, I'm going to suggest that the church became Trinitarian because it embraced a speculative elitist theology and rejected a theology much more comprehensible and accessible to the masses. My hope is to show uh, ultimately how social forces, familiar even to us today, had as much if not more to do with the church's move away from apostolic articulations of theology to its later Platonic articulations. Our first philosopher of interest is the Ephesian Heraclitus. Characteristic of his pre-Socratic cohorts, he seems to have held that the universe consisted of only one substance. But Heraclitus proposed that this substance was fire. For him, this fire was God, or Zeus, 
whom he aptly refers to by the epithet Thunderbolt. All that exists is merely a series of manifestations of the divine fire. Thus the world is continuously in flux through a series of transmigrations, transformations, fire becomes water, only to return to its native form in time. The world begins in fire and ends in conflagration, perhaps endlessly repeating. As a consequence of its constituent element, everything that exists is in a constant state of regeneration. The same river cannot be stepped into twice. For with every passing moment, the river cycles through the elements, fire, earth, water, air, and back to fire again. The nature of fire is strife. It turns that which is into that which is not. Heraclitus' philosophy had been characterized or has been characterized as monism. Simply put, all things are one thing. This is, notably, a great advance or progress from the early mythological view of the cosmos. My next philosopher is Zeno of Elia, a younger contemporary of Heraclitus. Platonists will have remembered that Plato used Socrates as his mouthpiece to argue with Zeno in Plato's works, uh, particularly the Parmenides. Parmenides was an Eliadic advocate of the doctrine that all things also are one. The university is not a unidiversity, but is rather an absolute unity. Unlike Heraclitus, Parmenides saw the universe as constant. Change is just an illusion. But both still understood the universe in monistic terms. Plato came to think this idea patently absurd, and so he has Socrates enter into dialogue with Parmenides' pupil Zeno. More importantly, Parmenides was directly at odds with Plato's doctrine of forms. In the Parmenides, Zeno defends his master's teachings on the grounds that, even if it were true that monism leads to absurdities, pluralism leads to even more. That is, if the notion that all things are one thing is absurd, then we should consider that the same absurdities accompany those who believe that the universe consists of many things. In proof of this, he offered a series of paradoxes of time and place. I'll mention one. First, he suggests that the existence of many things is impossible. For there to be more than one thing, say X1 and X2, there would have to be something in between X1 and X2, something that separates the two from each other, makes them discrete units or things. Let's call this thing between X1 and X2, X3. So it is X3 that positions itself between the two, and it is in this interpositional element that separates X1 and X2. But if X3 is required in order for X1 and X2 to become discrete things, then there has to be something that interposes itself between X1 and X3, which is itself the thing that distinguishes X1 from X2. So let's call this thing between X1 and X2, and the interpositional X3, X4. But then if X1 is to be distinguished from X4, then we must have something between those two as well. So we need an X5. And on it goes, ad infinitum, ad absurdum, ad nauseum. So if an infinity of interpositional things is necessary in order to sustain the discrete existence of merely two things, it is then patently observed 
uh, absurd that the universe is anything more than an absolute monistic unity. It violates the cardinal philosophical point that the universe holds no infinite regress. Sounds like sophistry to me. If this isn't a case of making by a web of words an obviously ridiculous claim seem somehow stronger uh, than one that we can verify with our own eyes, I don't know what is. But again, Parmenides' pupil seems only to have been at pains to show that his master was not a quack to say that all things are one. Anyone who tries to argue that the universe is a multiplicity will run into absurdities every bit the equal of the absurdity of supposing the universe to be a singularity. Or so, that was Zeno's argument. Another Zeno, Zeno of Kittium, continued Heraclitus's monism but modified it, primarily by erecting a moral, ethical edifice around Heraclitian ideas. He and his followers, of course, met in public stoas and thus came to be called Stoics. With the Stoic ethos, perhaps the ancient world's most sophisticated and enlightened ethical system yet devised outside of Sinai, little needs to be said here. It is Stoic cosmology and theology that's important for our purposes. Following Heraclitus, Zeno saw the cosmos as a phenomenon caught somewhere in varying stage of conflagration a fire that was unevenly distributed throughout. God and the universe are one, and the fire, Zeno believed, is the universe's creative energy, or what a later Stoic Cleanthes called pneuma, or spirit. Consequently, the Stoic God is wholly immanent within creation because he's inseparable from it. There is no sense in which he is transcendent above creation and inaccessible. He is in contrast to Plato's form of monotheism, and yes, Plato was a monotheist. Knowable within the natural order. Perhaps the principal contribution the Stoics made was in offering a worldview that in contrast to Plato's academy was comprehensible and accessible to the common man. Zeno of Kittium's followers took the obscurities of Heraclitus and the riddles of Parmenides and simplified them. Moreover, they made crucial connections between theology and ethics. Platonic theology could be lived if one had the leisure to live as a philosopher. No work. But Stoic theology became something any devotee, whether a philosopher, a king, or a tradesman, could actually live. Let's call this view the view that God is somehow knowable and imminent within creation, the pre-Socratic view, even though it is uh, largely articulated by uh, people downstream from Socrates. But this view didn't go unchallenged. Plato combined the teachings of Heraclitus and Parmenides, where Parmenides saw reality as constantly changing. Plato believed that the spiritual realm or true reality consisted of changeless ideals or forms. Where Heraclitus saw the cosmos as constantly changing, Plato believed that it's the natural world that's always changing. But unlike Heraclitus and the later Stoics, Plato believed that reality could not be accessed through the natural world. In fact, the natural world is, when compared with the true world behind our world, merely a mirage or a very loose shadow of the real. So for Plato, there is no material continuity between heaven and earth. The two are divided and cannot be bridged through the senses. Knowledge of heaven cannot come through the world itself. Instead, knowledge of reality is something inborn in the human mind but which is stifled by reliance upon the senses. 
Later Platonists radicalized the great philosopher's ideas and created an absolute, unbridgeable divide between heaven and earth, spiritual material, divine and human. Centuries later, at approximately the same time as Tertullian, Plotinus and Porphyry modified their master's doctrine somewhat. I don't claim they directly influenced our third century theologians. I merely take them as representative of Plato's later legacy, sometimes called Neoplatonism. But they're important because they partook of the same philosophical and linguistic ecosystem that produced Tertullian, Origen, and Hippolytus. For Plotinus, the world is divided into a sensible realm and an intelligible realm. The intelligible realm consists of three hypostases, the one, the mind, and the soul. The one who transcends the category of being didn't create the physical world. From the supreme monad emanated the logos, the will or word of God. And from the logos emanated the so-called world soul. And from the world soul was created the physical world that we know. To give a forensic description of this Neoplatonic trinity, the one is self-sufficient and is even above being a cause of the existence of Logos and soul. Logos arises out of contemplating the beauty of the one and is thus pure being and the foundation of all that exists. Through the Logos, all things were created, Plato's followers would say. The soul arises out of an urgency to actualize or create that which the Logos contemplates. And thus, at exactly the same time, I can't underscore the importance of this statement. At exactly the same time as Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, and Novation were forming a Trinitarian vocabulary for Christian theology, Plotinus and Porphyry, non-Christian, Neoplatonic philosophers, were articulating a theology in which the one, the logos, and the soul were a complete unity, but consisting of three distinct hypostases. I'm sure this is boring beyond belief. I'm falling asleep myself. But I think necessary for everything that follows. This survey, brief and admittedly anecdotal, is necessarily selective. I have not hardly scratched the surface, please. I've used broad brush strokes. There's so much more to this than, than what I have articulated here. But I think I have taken a few germane trends, and I'm going to apply them. I selected these examples and painted with a broad brush simply to suggest that there were two basic currents of thought available to the Gentile world of the second, third, and fourth centuries. On the one hand, there's the pre-Socratic view, a view distilled by the Stoics and made readily accessible to the common man, so accessible that most people who looked out upon the world through a Stoic lens were usually not even aware that their outlook was Stoic. In essence, the Stoic outlook saw God or the gods, as somehow manifest and imminent within creation. What humans suffer, the divine also somehow suffers. The other outlook, 
the outlook of what I'm calling the academy originating with Plato was quite different. Different. Different because in Plato's ideal, God was transcendent over creation and was associated only with creation insofar as that which was begotten of him began creation. To ascribe to God human qualities or to suggest that he spoke directly with mankind or to think that he could be knowable and made manifest within creation was not only to denigrate the dignity of God but also to indulge in the greatest conceivable folly. This context is necessary to come to this singular point. The pre-Socratic or Stoic outlook was a populist movement. The thought life of the masses and even the simple The academy outlook was largely an elitist outlook, a view held by the more highly educated and those who had the luxury of devoting significant time to detached contemplation. Now on to our Christian theologians. Justin Martyr, an early second century native of Samaria, convert to the faith, does a yeoman's job fighting a two-front war for the Christian faith. On one front, Justin faced the derision of upper-class Gentiles. The fact that the one he worshipped had been punished on a Roman cross was simply too much of a strain on Greco-Roman credulity. Conditioned as they were by Platonic notions of the divine, Christian worship offended at every level their more refined sensibilities. For them... Not only was it far beneath the dignity of God to take up flesh and appear within this world, but it was also offensive to imagine him suffering. When Justin wrote to Emperor Antoninus Pius, the father of Marcus Aurelius, it's evident that his concentration is taken up primarily with normalizing Christianity so that the religion wouldn't be classified as religio illicitas, you know, illegal religion. That is, uh, uh, he wanted it to be religio licitas, one of the uh, permitted state-protected religions. He takes on the charge that Christians are atheists. His apologia is telling, if indeed Christians are atheists, Rome should remember that this was the same charge by which Socrates was condemned. For the charge that Christians are insane, Justin argued that demons have distorted and exaggerated Christian practices. In fact, says Justin, Christians worship one who taught his followers to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. To those who find the worship of a crucified Messiah repugnant among the Gentiles, consider, says Justin, that the gods Asclepius, Bacchus, and Hercules were also said to have suffered similar fates. Then Justin makes the alarming claim that the Greeks and Romans can't claim Plato's wisdom as Plato's own, seeing that everything Plato learned, obviously, he learned from Moses himself. I have to smile every time I pass over that. That is beautiful naivete. In other words, Justin worked to shatter Roman propaganda by reducing the faith's strangeness where it was different from traditional Greco-Roman thought. And he emphasized at pains uh, points that corresponded between the two. On a second front, Justin also faced the wrath of a Jewish people who were also oppressed by the Roman Empire. Just after the temple's destruction, Pharisees in Roman-occupied Palestine picked up the pieces of what remained of the Sanhedrin 
and set up a new center in Yavne. And it was here, sometime in the last quarter of the first century, that the rabbis composed a series of benedictions to be recited throughout the week by the congregation at synagogue. In addition to the prayers of blessing, there were 18 of them. There was one imprecatory prayer. It's the so-called Birkat Hamid. Keraga harasha v'kol tikva tehi al vela menanim mechaira v'hanazarim yekaraitu mechaira. And for heretics and the Nazarenes, let there be no hope. And may all the evil in the instant be destroyed. You picked up on the word Nazarenes. That's what the rabbis called the Christians. Let them be swiftly removed. This prayer, as it calls for the swift destruction of the so-called heretics or Nazarenes, it's compulsory for each member of the congregation to pray this prayer in synagogue. And it had the intentional effect of weeding out any lingering Jewish people who had Christian sympathies. To ensure that no one tried to find safety in numbers, each member of the synagogue took turns leading the congregation in this recitation. The given day's leader was allowed to mispronounce or misread any of the prayers except for this one. In the unfortunate event that the 18th benediction, the curse upon the Christians, was mispronounced on accident or otherwise, that person was to be expelled permanently from the synagogue for having Nazarene sympathies. Justin was so eager to show the unbelieving Jews that their own scriptures refer to the Messiah as God in this context. That he takes too little care to preserve the integrity of the Shema. It never seems to have occurred to him that if he were to convince a Jewish leader that Jesus was God, he was going to have to do so from within, not from without, the clear boundaries of the most important article of the Jewish theological creed, the Lord our God is one. Instead, he naively argues for two gods, the Father and the subordinate derivative Logos. And he argues this so forcefully that later Nicene fathers even felt repulsed by his creed. Though Justin did pay homage to certain aspects of Stoicism, his apologies betray the fact that for him the Stoic notion of the supreme God's eminence within creation offered no helpful way of thinking theologically. I would suggest that this in part is due to the fact that Justin's apologetics were developed largely out of a desire to show continuity with the Platonic Academy, which had so much credibility with the upper classes. I would be remiss if I didn't mention what seems obvious to me. But like Peter and Paul before him, Justin paid the ultimate price for his Christian faith. His epithet, martyr, tells us much more of what we need to know about his character. He died under the boot of the Roman Empire. The Caesars triumphed for a while. But today we call our cats Caesar, our dogs Nero, and our sons Paul, Peter, and Justin. this Alexa Minas Graffito. This was unearthed 
unearthed in Rome not too long ago. This was sketchily inscribed in a wall. And it says, Alexamina Sebete Tetheon. It's in Greek. Most Romans spoke Greek in the first century. It says, Alexaminus worships his God. And look at the figure that he worships. It's a donkey upon a cross. That is the picture, the common conception of the Christian of the first and second centuries. And that is the context in which Justin was writing. And where Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I fear that sometimes, sometimes Justin wanted to take that picture down. Wanted to normalize his faith. Regarding Tertullian, a younger contemporary of Justin, Tertullian followed the apologists in their view, but he did so more outrageously. For his part, Jesus isn't God in the same sense that the Father is God. God the Father is God in the monotheistic sense, but he is also the source of the Son. The Son is only God insofar as the Father has given him of his own substance. Father, Son, Holy Spirit do not together combine to make the one true God, as later Nicene theologians would say. For Tertullian, the Son is a subordinate ruler. The Holy Spirit is subordinate to the Son. And this isn't explained as a kind of kenosis or emptying on the part of the Son and Spirit, being equal with the Father but willingly subordinate, um, uh, subordinating themselves. The Son's subordination, in Tertullian's view, isn't therefore psychological, it's ontological. The Son truly is subordinate in nature, though he has been given a portion of God's substantia. In this sense, Tertullian was contrary to um, what we might think. Tertullian was a strict monotheist. But he achieved his monotheism by stripping Christ of full deity and filling the echelons below God the Father with two junior partners. So they were not God in the same sense that the Father was God. As I mentioned previously, Tertullian's formulations sound eerily like those of Plotinus and Porphyry's. Where the Neoplatonists said that God consisted of three hypostases in unity, the one, the logos, the world soul, Tertullian's theology consists of an impassable, unsuffering father. A logos who forms the basis of being and creation, and a Holy Spirit who actualizes the logos' will. Sure, his, uh, his, his articulation is not exactly parallel, but I cannot help but think that Porphyry and Tertullian drew from one identical education in Platonism. For the Christian Academy, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one, but their oneness is a nuanced oneness, an absolute threeness. The modalists, however, lay absolute weight on God's oneness by contrast, and nuance the way in which God is understood to be three. Tertullian does indeed take a concept from the Stoics for his theology. But like going to Fort Knox to rob the bathrooms, he manages to take the Stoics' worst ideas. He understood God to be a material being with material substance, substance which he subsequently parceled out to Son and Spirit, but the rest of his abstract theology is told in Platonic terms. 
For instance, Tertullian thought that God, like the Platonic monad, was passionless. That is, he was unmoving and could not conceivably suffer, being far too high for such trifles. God does, however, redeem human beings, Tertullian said, but by sending the subordinate God to suffer. This keeps the whole platonic schema intact and avoids offending sensibilities groomed by the larger academy. Most interestingly, as we all know, Tertullian said that the great majority of Christians were of modalist persuasion. This point has been mentioned several times. I'm going to go a different direction with it. His diagnosis for their theological handicap, what is it? According to him, the reason folks didn't see things his way was that they were simple and uninstructed. I've always found this term here, uninstructed, curious. How can it be that he refers to the typical Christian of his time as uninstructed? We're not speaking here of the 21st century, where in some places all you care about is how many people you bring in for a revival and baptize. We're talking about the first, second, third centuries here. In the first, second, and third, at least in the second and third centuries, I should say. Christians had to undergo a year-long catechism before they were even allowed to be baptized in most cases. A year-long catechism of discipleship. And baptisms usually occurred on one day a year to make sure that people who were being baptized were serious. It couldn't take very many risks, uh, as persecuted as they were. They wanted to know, are you really with us? So Tertullian calling the average Christian simple and uninstructed absolutely blows my mind. They couldn't have been uninstructed. That's more true of 21st century Christianity than 3rd century Christianity. Surely, Tertullian wasn't charging the majority with being uninstructed in biblical teaching. No. That's not what he meant. Uninstructed in the Bible? No, because every Christian was instructed in the Bible. Here's what he meant, I think. Those not trained in the rigors of the academy are understandably no match for my complex scientific account of the Godhead. Regarding Hippolytus, Origen, Novation, each of whom deserve a whole presentation, but I'm constrained to just a few words. Novation, a middle of the third century theologian, has left a track called On the Trinity. Herein, he argues for a strong separation between the Father and Son. He, like Justin and Tertullian, supposed that the Son came in the form of the angels who visited the Old Testament patriarchs. After the Decian persecution, his molten gaze fell upon those unfortunate Christians who had in some sense apostatized under pressure, but desired to return to the fold. Novation, however, said that there was no pardon for those who had gone apostate and caved to Roman pressure. Hippolytus, we know, for having written an enduring essay against the modalists, he called modalists in the very finest academic language available, apparently, idiots. And he hoped to, he said, heap universal scorn upon them. 
He scolds Noetus for saying that the Father and Son are the same substance, which is the very position the Nicene Council would instantiate in its creed less than a century later. He painted Pope Callistus, a modalist, sympathizing bishop, as the Bernie Madoff of third century Rome. A crook, a scam artist. But Callistus' real crime seems to have been that he, unlike Hippolytus, had been willing to extend the church's pardon and welcome back the apostates once they had undergone a season of trial. Novation obstinately denied the church's ability to proclaim Christ's forgiveness for such sins. Callistus therefore banished him. And Hippolytus then proceeded to start his own church like a true schismatic. And he called this church the true church, the real church. Interestingly, and perhaps not coincidentally, Novation, Hippolytus, Tertullian, three of the major Western driving forces against modalism were all schismatics, all perfectly willing to watch the oneness of the church dismantled for the sake of their idiosyncratic theories. If they were willing to divide the body of Christ over their theories, it is thus not strange to me that they were willing to divide also the Godhead. It's in character. Corroborating evidence that modalism was the dominant theology at least at the end of the second and third or first half of the third century. Three and perhaps four of Rome's chief bishops, I'm going to call them anachronistically popes, four successive popes of the Roman Catholic Church from the 180s to about the 240s were all modalists. Eleutherius, Zephyrinus, Victor, and Callistus. We should also remember Hippolytus didn't say that Sibelius had taught or corrupted Rome on modalism. He said that it was Pope Callistus who had convinced Sibelius of modalist theology. Given that the theology of Justin, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Novation required, as their writings testify, a highly advanced lexicon of philosophical vocabulary, it is likely, is it likely, excuse me, that the uneducated majority simply lost this vocabulary in the interregnum between the apostles in the third century? Or is it more likely that the educated Christian minority picked up the language from their platonic counterparts? Among the lower classes, time moves very slowly with all the speed of a glacial ice cap. For the uneducated majority, change comes so gradually. And if you want to know what America today, if you want to know what America was like 50 years ago, you don't even have to find the old timers. You can just go hang out with 25-year-old coal miners or construction workers. As an a university educator myself, if you want to know what America will be like 50 years from now, go to the university and hang out with 25-year-old graduate students. And indeed, I would argue that modalism was a close facsimile to what had been taught in Rome among Christians near the end of the first century, but by the 270s was rarely taught in Rome. The academy, unfortunately, became Rome's future. Modalism was eclipsed and made Rome's primitive past. 
What happened? By the time we arrive at the era of Nicaea, theology has been taken out of the hands of the ordinary Christian and placed under, under the guardianship of specialists to whom the ordinary Christians, though they didn't understand, were nevertheless compelled to submit. In a nutshell, the academy within the church began to view itself as acting in loco parentis on behalf of the simple children of their ward. I'd like to skip ahead a little bit and come to my conclusion and suggest a comprehensible theology. Before I do, I want to make one note. Has anyone in here read Tertullian's work against Praxius? This is his, really his uh, credo um, against the modalists. Okay, if you've read it. Against Praxius. From beginning to end, he makes fun of Praxius for being a modalist. But I want, to, I want to urge you to think about that title against Praxius for a moment. Praxius is a pseudonym. We don't have a record of anybody stirring up any kind of trouble, at least not the way Tertullian says, named Praxius in the early church. Certainly not as a modalist. Praxius was a pseudonym most likely for Bishop Victor, the modalist Roman bishop. Against Praxius. You know what Praxius means? It means tradesman. He chose the name more than likely Praxius because it was an insult to his class. The reason why Victor held this position was because he was just a common man and couldn't understand theology. So he titles the work against praxis, or against the common man. Think about that as you read against praxis. Allow me to propose that God achieves his purposes in creation not through a distribution of hierarchy of persons, but through the dynamism and uniqueness of his being. Is the monarchian modalist description of how God is Father, Son, and Spirit possible for God? I can't see why not. Putting aside the question of whether or not God did or did not, in fact, simply manifest himself in three modes in history, is it possible for him to have done so? Now, on the other side of the equation, is it possible for God to be what the Trinitarian model says he is? One God, but three persons. The oneness apostolic answer is a resounding no. It isn't possible for a being to be both one person and three persons, not because we want to limit the majesty of God, but because of the way the term person is defined. A person is a radically unique, self-contained sentient entity. In the late 4th century and middle of the 5th at the councils of Constantinople and Chalcedon, the church had to deal with the constitution of the person of Christ. Is Christ one-natured or two-natured? A deity taking up residence in a less than robust humanity or a being consisting of two distinct but inseparable natures? 
uh, the Antiochene answer argued the latter, that Christ was one person but possessed two radically separate natures. The Alexandrian representatives said that Christ had only one nature, a divine nature. He is a deity inhabiting a fleshly shell. Now, it seems to me that this later church decision was handled the way the early Nicene decision should have been handled. When the Alexandrian theologians said that Christ was more divine than human, and the Antiochians said that he had a divine nature and a human nature, and that the two were completely and radically separate, the mediating voice of the Christian church stepped in and said no to both positions. They testified that Christ was both fully human and fully divine, and that these two natures were joined in hypostatic union. All God, all man. Notice that when the Alexandrian school went so far as to say that in Christ were two persons, yes, that's what they argued, in Christ were two persons, the rest of the church refused and said that although there is indeed humanity and divinity in Christ, and that these two belong to ontologically different categories. The notion that this distinction requires us to refer to Christ as constituting more than one person is fallacious. Instead, the church simply chose to represent that distinction between the human and the divine in Christ, not by the term persons, but by the term natures. This is precisely akin to what the Sabellians had offered the church at a much earlier stage with respect to the Godhead a term that could account for the distinction between the humanity of the Son and the deity of the Father, between the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit, while yet preserving Jewish monotheism and avoiding altogether the scent of polytheism. Every objection a Trinitarian has to the modalist model's handling of the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit could also be raised regarding the relationship between the divinity and humanity of Christ. For instance... How can it be that the Son prays to the Father if they are the same person? But notice that this problem has a parallel in the Christological debate. The Alexandrians would ask, how can it be that Jesus is a man if he forgives sin? How can he be God if he goes to sleep? The false Alexandrian answer was this. The Son of God consists of two persons, Jesus of Nazareth and Christ the Lord. This answer threatened to church turn Christ into a bipolar figure. but the hypostatic union solved it. If the church was willing to account for the distinction between the divine and the human in Christ without resorting to multiple person language, why could it not have also used it to account for the distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit? The Nicene church could have said that distinctions result in multiple manifestations or natures, but instead it used the mind-defeating language of three persons and yet one God, which for most sounds like an actual belief in multiple gods and only a nominal token acknowledgement of the oneness of God. Perhaps the worst part of it is that language is made to suffer abuse. Language is supposed to approximate reality as much as it can. To detach language from reality is to defeat the human mind altogether. And with respect to God's nature in the church father's pedagogy, our whole linguistic training from childhood up is rendered virtually obsolete. Person doesn't mean, and does mean, what we think it means. Begotten does and doesn't mean what we think it means. Three does and doesn't mean what we think it means. One does and doesn't mean what we think it means. 
and after having our language beaten into submission for wanting dearly to be orthodox. The laity, feeling hopelessly inadequate, resigns from theology and develops a kind of Stockholm Syndrome, ready and willing to accept more abuse of language and sense. If only we can be saved. It hardly needs to be said that this is a recipe for further theological and ecclesiastical abuse. We can speak of God's nature being utterly incomprehensible, but we must be wary, for we may find ourselves worshiping our own ignorance. Willing ignorance is itself a construct of the mind, and we shouldn't think for a minute that we aren't capable of erecting such an idol. Furthermore, we run the risk of turning theology into mental yoga, an exercise of leisure for the idol and argumentative. Theology is supposed to make God conceptually knowable. Any system that becomes too complex ceases to be a system. Theology should lift our minds higher, not defeat them. Theology is not an assignment for the quiet halls of seminary, but for the tow truck driver who sits beside his wife at a deathbed. Modalists then and now believe that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three manifestations or modes of one and the same God. The Father is his eternal manifestation, God's basic disposition towards creation. He never ceases being Father, not even when he manifests himself as Son. The Son is a temporal manifestation, and it refers specifically to God as he's incarnate in the flesh. It is sometimes said that in Christ, God, quote-unquote, robed himself in flesh. And if you've ever said that, you can raise a guilty finger. But this is imprecise Christian theology. Robed suggests God is hidden in the flesh, but this is precisely the opposite of what Paul said the incarnation was. Paul said God was manifest in the flesh. What we saw in Christ was not God out of character. The incarnation was God in character. The humanity of Christ did not hide God's character. It revealed God's character. When Jesus wept, he was not betraying his fleshly weakness. Jesus wept not because the incarnation suddenly provided God with the capacity to weep. Jesus wept because God has always wept. When we see the Son of God, we are seeing God not at his least authentic, but at his most authentic. The flesh of God was not a veil hiding God's essence. Instead, God's incarnational flesh was a window through which we could see God clearly. God's flesh does not reveal God's weakest side or his best side, or for that matter, any side. The incarnation showed us God's most complete self. The majesty of theology is not in its hiddenness. The majesty of theology is in its comprehensiveness. The supremacy of theology is not in its complexity, but in its sublime simplicity. Like David, we may know that out beyond the fathomless stars is a God who fingers those heavenly bodies. But we also know that to our surprise, he doth visit us sons of men. And when he visits, we can rest assured that it is not that he may hide himself, but that we may know him. I'm afraid that if we were to visit the haunts of some of our church fathers, while admiring their great devotion, we would stand astonished at the inscription written beneath their creeds, for it would read, Agnostu Theu, to the unknown God. While the Eastern theologians were busy constructing their mysteries and labyrinthine vocabularies, standing sentinel like the cherubim guarding the gates of Eden, 
It is said that an Arabian nomad seeking understanding from the local Christians found instead an enigma amongst them. And to his mind, trained to see beauty in simplicity and ugliness in confusion, Christian doctrine, from what he could tell, was a mess and saddled with two theologies, one for the teachers and one for the laity. It is clear from his writing that the Christian theology he was criticizing is but a caricature of biblical theology. But that doesn't matter. His perception became a lot of people's reality, and today Muhammad's misunderstanding bears witness in our world. Some 15 centuries hence, his perceptions rule. My last words are for Tertullian, the man who coined the term Trinitas in this context. I wish he could see his city of Carthage now, modern Tunisia. The hot, withering breath of Islam has since swept over his land. And today his Berber people are 98% Muslim and belong to a religion whose first pillar, the Shahada, emphasizes precisely what he neglected. There is no God but God, Muhammad said. Unfortunately, it ends and Muhammad is his messenger. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Painter, for that tremendous presentation. We are concluding with a question and answer period. We've got time for questions, and I'm sure those questions are, are adding up Again, let me just remind you, keep your questions on point uh, and keep them within 60 seconds and we will uh, commence from there and, and start to take your questions. I think we're starting over at the right. We've got a couple of questions over there on my right. Dr. Painter, I thoroughly enjoyed and appreciate how thoughtfully penned this writing and the reading thereof. My question is, going back to the beginning of this, this is the early century, these early centuries, what access did the common man have to the, the written and the oral writings, the, the experience, the, the, the beginnings of the New Testament church? Re repeat the question. So what access did the common man have to the, the writings of the early church, the New Testament? the doctrine, the, the theology? Was it, was it oral? Was it written? Was there a mix? But mostly concerning the common man. Well, literacy was very, of, of course, very different then. And the, uh, the, uh, the antique mind is a, is a mind uh, whose capacity for memory is stunning. Um, it is... It was said of the uh, uh, rabbi's apprentice uh, that the uh, good rabbi's apprentice is one who does not let one drop of water fall through the cistern of his mind. Um, memory was, uh, uh, the early sayings, the sayings of Jesus were memorized in what's called the kerygma. Um, so uh, I would say it's predominantly oral. They did not necessarily, the common man did not necessarily read, uh, but they had their church leaders who uh, collected into writings the works of the apostles. Yeah. Uh, next question also from the right, and then we'll cross over. 
That was absolutely incredible. Um, I'm still lost to the interpositional X3. Total waste of time. So later, please help me figure out where 6 adds into all that. Uh, One of the questions I have that I think is very real in the realm of philosophy and what you were talking about, contrasting Greek philosophy with the transient movement out of the Hebraic culture into the Hellenistic culture of that time. I hear a lot of people talk about the Logos, and they emphasize, and a lot of oneness Pentecostals do this, and they spend a lot of time in the Greek philosophic interpretation of the Logos. My question to you would be how much of Plato's dualism factors into that Logos, and are we incorrectly? Because I know the Targums use the Memra that would move into more of a, a, a better understood Logos. Are we hurting Scripture by trying to push Greek philosophy into interpreting verbiage in there? Uh, depends. Um, uh, Plato has influenced the way you and I think whether you know it or not. Um, so, again, I, I, would, I would urge against willing ignorance. Um, John was using a term that had a, had a, a, a deep history. And it was a, a, he was writing to a certain receptive audience that had a certain understanding of what Logos meant. And in order for us, 20 centuries later, to divine what John meant and expected his audience to understand of Logos, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to try to find out what was built into their minds to the original audience's minds concerning Logos. So if, if we don't, if we're not familiar with, uh, with how much, uh, with, with how much Plato has influenced culture, then we are often influenced without knowing it. And that's the most dangerous form of influence. Uh, uh, it's, it's beneath the radar influence. So I would say, I would, I would urge knowing it well. And, and one more thing on those, on that point, uh, I, I, I made a, an, an allusion to this, but I, I didn't have time to stress it. But I do want to say it's, it's, it's so important to understand that the 5th, 4th, 3rd centuries B.C., the development of, of Greek thought is a major improvement upon the mythological construct of the world before the Socratics, before the pre-Socratics, I should say. And so uh, the, what the pre-Socratics did and then Plato, they, took, they, they, they yanked the world by the ear and said, come out of this, um, out of this mythological worldview and uh, begin to think uh, 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 more rationally. So uh, a major improvement, and just as, just as there were many... Uh, uh, for instance, you have your really your first international language is Koine Greek. Aramaic is something it was close. It was a, a ancient Near Eastern a parallel to what Koine Greek was later. But Koine Greek is the first international language since Babel. 
Um, and it was so important that the apostles could travel anywhere in the known world and they, they could speak to a Persian in Greek if they were, if they were say, Roman uh, and vice versa. So there was this uh, a development of language which enabled the spread of, of the gospel through Greek. The same way, I think, the, the uh, Greek philosophical uh, school or academy helped prepare the Gentile world to receive a more monotheistic view of the world. It was highly pantheistic and highly polytheistic before Plato. After Plato, it is more sympathetic towards monotheistic constructs. Come here, and then back. Do you believe that uh, Colossians 2 and 8, where Paul tells them, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of, the, of men, after the rudiments of the world, that he is dealing with uh, this corrupted uh, concept that he knows his constituents and the people of his day? Hmm. And if, if you do, would you expound on it a little bit? Yes, certainly. Um, so Colossians 2, uh, reading the tenor of the letter, uh, Paul's great fear uh, that seems to animate this letter is that uh, he, he's actually having some problems with Judaizers, uh, uh, su surprisingly, in Colossians. And um, he speaks of not spoiling through vain philosophies which are built on the traditions of men, correct? Something along those lines, built on the traditions of men. Where else in the New Testament, there's one other place in the New Testament where this particular phrase, after the traditions of men, is used. Where? It's in Mark's Gospel. And these are the words of Jesus. He's speaking of the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin. Their teachings are after the traditions of men. And so ironically, the philosophies that Paul is specifically pointing out here are not necessarily Platonic or Aristotelian or, or Stoic, but, uh, but particularly uh, Gnosticism, which was a, a kind of a confluence of, of Platonic theology and Judaism. So uh, I, I think the target is actually um, uh, uh, philosophies like Philo, if any of you are familiar with Philo of Alexandria. Uh, or the philosophy of later Valentine, uh, the, the, the Gnostic theologian. Um, so I think we're dealing with Gnosticism there. Yeah. Does that answer your question? I'm not sure. Thanks. Okay, the back. Dr. Painter, I appreciate that presentation. And uh, I think that this is the arena and the environment in which we need to hear uh, these kind of presentations. For me, this answered a lot of questions about the uprising of uh, philosophical influence to stop revelation and the ongoing progression of the church. I do know that literature is very limited from this time frame. My question for you is, is why was it necessary for philosophical thought to champion itself against the revelation that had been given and was an ongoing um, 
motivating force of the early church, if you could answer that. Thank you. Okay, that last part, Brother Mayo, could you ask that last part again? Yes. Why was there an uprising of Hellenistic philosophical thought against the revelation that had been given to the early church? It appears to be a contrast there. Yeah, so the section, unfortunately, I, for time purposes, had to skip over. I, I hope to answer that there, um, the thumbnail. Um, radicals, free thinkers, are generally very articulate. People who swim upstream against culture are generally very necessarily articulate survival. Uh, conservatism, at least at its early stage, people trying to conserve the truths handed down from a generation or two or three ago are generally, by nature and by necessity, less articulate because they hold the truths to be self-evident. They don't need to articulate them. They don't need to argue them. They just simply believe them. And so sometimes they find themselves in a battle, the articulate free thinker against, against the uh, uh, inarticulate conservatism. Um, uh, sometimes during this process the, the, uh, uh, the threat to conservatism becomes such that new generations come along and try to combat uh, opposing ideas and so they begin to adopt the language of the educated elite okay they're, they're, they're enrolling in platonic schools in order to try to put down the Gnostic heresy or the adoptionist heresy or the Ebionite heresy, okay? Um, uh, but at the same time, at the same time, um, at the same time, the old teachings begin to fade away and are clothed inside these new articulations which can sometimes be so foreign to the original teachings. I think this was a social development and it has everything to do with the church, especially the younger members, trying to appeal to the upper classes. And so they're beginning to use the language of the upper classes and looking down, sneering upon the simple majority, who aren't really that simple, but nevertheless, that's, that's, that's what we have. So I think by the time we get to the, by the, time we get to the end of the second, third century, excuse me, we're very much dealing with a sociological problem here. Uh, uh, it's actually cla a class problem. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's start over here, and then we'll come back to the center. Dr. Painter, for this uh, awesome presentation, uh, I noticed in your bibliography there's one book by Franz Krauss, if all of what you presented today is consolidated in that book, could you help me to find a copy of that? And oh. <laughs> that I, was actually a joke. <laughs> okay. okay. I did not know how to take that. Okay. I wouldn't mind one, by the way. No, that, that's, a, that's a source for something I had to skip over, a, right. a, a saying inscribed on a tomb. Go ahead. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And uh, just for uh, maybe my information, and maybe I had to skip over this, what was... Uh, Philo's Logos or Philo's Logos concept. You mentioned the Alexandrian school. 
and their uh, involvement or influence in it, seeing that that's where uh, the septuagint was actually produced. Okay, I'm sorry I asked for repeating questions. Yes, so what was Philo's Logos concept, the origin of it, and what influence did that have a la the Alexandrian school uh, because the Septuagint was produced there uh, on the subsequent development of, of uh, the Christological sure, sure. concepts? Um, well, Philo had quite an influence upon the early church. Uh, it, all you need to do is open up the uh, uh, Ecclesiastica Historica, that Eusebius's work on Christian history, church history, I should say. Um, he mentions Philo all the time. And he's Eusebius, um, uh, of course, from Caesarea and uh, uh, was present at the Council of Nicaea. So uh, we, we would be foolish to think that Eusebius was the only one influenced. Um, Philo's, Philo's Logos was, uh, uh, was essentially wisdom personified. It was an attribute of God. Philo was strictly monotheist, but his language sounds awfully, awfully polytheistic at times. Um, and, and that is essentially what often happens when Christian theology merges with Platonic theology. It sounds polytheistic, although it often shoots for monotheism. It's, it's, it's an occupational hazard. I would say. Okay, we have a couple of questions in the center here. We'll start with the gentleman right near the back. Yeah, Brother Painter, I appreciate that, all that information that you got. I might be a simple individual. I mean, I'll, I'll say it from that standpoint, but... Uh, this Plato and these uh, Tortalian and or whatever his name is, were they, do you feel that they were under the orchestration of the, of the Holy Ghost to make those, uh, those forward motions that they did? No, I, I think they were, they were um, again, trying to, they were trying to um, speak a certain language uh, that was, foreign, really, to uh, Christian theology, very much so. Um, the, uh, the orchestration of, I, I will say this, that the uh, Nicene Creed is an improvement upon Tertullian, uh, strangely, um, where Tertullian had this really binitarian, hard, you know, two gods, three gods sort of concept. Uh, uh, Nicene theology uh, was Theologians were typically repulsed by that idea and tried to find some way of making it a little more palatable linguistically. Um, there were two options on the table at Nicaea. Unfortunately, there was not a modalist option. It was between Christ is not divine at all or Christ is divine as a second person in the Trinity. Um, the, uh, uh, we left the, the, if, if we're left with the false dilemma of only having these two to choose from, um, Trinitarian theology is certainly an improvement upon Arian theology, but no, I don't think any of this was under the orchestration of the Holy Spirit. All right, uh, right here in the center, and then maybe after this, we might have time for one more question. Thank you, Dr. Pinter. 
I was born into a Roman Catholic home, and this was the heritage that I knew before receiving a better light later on. And all my life, it's been like I'm trying to play a catch-up game, and it's like before I fully understand uh, some things, it's like I'm knowing more and more. And so, um, recently I had a statement by a, uh, the Catholic, uh, current Catholic leaders, I mean the highest office, believing that everyone is a Catholic and are even hopeful that one day they are going to lay aside their protest and become one again. Sure. For me, based on my experience, uh, since I knew what it means to be saved, it's a scary statement for me, knowing what I have been delivered from, knowing that it was not just a mere religious practice, but I had personal experiences as a child. So, question. my question now is, are there um, belief systems or influences that you think that this Roman Catholic belief system still has even on the apostolic cycle? Could, I'm going to ask for a repeat of the question succinct. Can you repeat the question? Are there things you personally are concerned to, uh, uh, to be an influence of the Roman Catholic faith on what the apostolics believe today? Are there relics of carryover from that belief system that you think we need to be careful about today as um, apostolics? I mentioned at the outset of the of the presentation, uh, I, I gave a a qualification for everything I was saying that um, I have seen what can happen when we try to go through this purification process of our theology, um, and and it's a double-edged sword. Um, I have family that I have lost because they. They wanted to erase every vestige of the Roman Catholic Church from the Apostolic Church. And ultimately, they ended up in Judaism. Um, so so I, I don't think that the Apostolic Church has any bad relics from the Catholic Church today. Um, what we do share with the Catholic Church, the, um, for instance, the... the, the, the the Bible, belief in the infallible word of God. Um, that's not a relic of the Catholic Church. That's prior to the Catholic Church, and we both share that belief. So uh, there, what I think we have kept the best of what there was to have of older traditions and, uh, and then gone back to the Bible for everything. Uh, so whatever's in line with Scripture, we've kept that. Um, and if the Catholic Church also happens to have kept that, good. Did that answer your question? 
Okay. Oh, you mean the, uh, the Apocrypha? Yes, but they st I, I, I mentioned the belief in the infallible Bible, the infallible Word of God. So we share that belief, uh, the, the virgin birth, for instance, um, some of those things. Whatever we can both have from the Bible uh, is good. Whatever's extra biblical, we can get rid of it. I just don't really see that amongst us. All right, we'll take final question from the very back here, and then we'll wrap it up from there. Oh, boy. I'm not testing. I just want to know something. From the very beginning, Jesus, uh, when the disciples were on this earth, they were looked at as being ignorant men. And not necessarily being ignorant. Today, apostolics from many realms are looked at as being ignorant. Uh, possibly that being a form of the enemy's attack against the church is to look down on the church. What are the dangers today that we face from the elitist? Well, uh, we, we, I, I, deeply regret having to skip over that whole section that dealt with this and tried to apply it to our own movement. But you remember I was talking about earlier about how radicals tend to be more articulate than early stage conservatives. Uh, the Pentecostal apostolic movement, um, though it has its roots in the Bible, we're, we're fairly young as a movement, as a collective body. Um, and uh, we're now five or six generations into this. And we have moved from the other side of the tracks in many cases. We were born in poverty. And now we're more affluent. And now our children have a chance to go off to school. The stability that our forefathers gave us uh, uh, has afforded the opportunity for for kids to go off to school and, and get an education. And I've heard, I've heard people take, say, uh, Brother David Bernard to task, secretly, of course, never to his face, but secretly, for his theological works not being on the level of some of, uh, say, a Karl Barth. And, you know, Karl Barth, he sat in a university for 50 years. He didn't have a church to pastor. He didn't have a Bible college to run. He didn't have... Uh, he didn't have a thousand different things that, he had, that our forefathers, they, they've had to do. Uh, this is a luxury that, that my generation has that previous generations didn't. And so what can happen is we can begin, once we get, we ourselves get out of the academy, we have two choices. Sneer at our forefathers and take their, take their uh, devotion as a... a, a, a something from uh, the simple and uninstructed or come under the guardianship of the forefathers and realize that there is something, there, there, there's something profounder. There's something that transcends. Uh, there's something to be kept, something to be preserved. So, and, and not to lose touch with our roots, our, 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 even our impoverished roots. 
Um, and never, ever forget that. And, and it, when, when you get a group of uh, young guys sitting around together making fun of all the uh, 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 shibboleth they hear from behind a pulpit, that's not a good recipe. Um, uh, it's, it's important that we stay in continuity with one another across the generation. It's the only chance we have of continuing is if we can take the opportunity to be educated, but not lose touch with and look down upon our past. Otherwise, we become orphans of history. Thank you so much, Dr. Painter. What a wonderful way to end this portion of this symposium.